Hello and welcome to our first ever live show of China Econ Talk. I'm your host Jordan Schneider here today with Martin Rasser and 50 of the most intelligent and attractive people to ever attend a think tank event in Washington D.C. Okay, Martin is a senior fellow at CNAS. Previously, he spent a long time at the CIA researching emerging tech, innovation, and weapons development. He also served as a senior advisor in the office of the Secretary of Defense. Martin. Welcome to China Econ Talk. Great to be here, Jordan. Thank you. So, can you talk a little bit about the way the IC thinks through things versus what you've seen in the past working at think tanks over the past few months and years? Sure, absolutely.、Uh, so, the work itself, like how you approach analysis of research, it's, it's actually very similar.、Uh, it's more so the、uh, sources of information. Obviously, as an intelligence analyst, you have access to a lot more. Another big difference is that at a think tank, most organizations, you know, you don't take an institutional position. So in my job, I can write op-eds on topics that I feel are important. I don't have to check with anyone. Is do you agree with my analysis?、Uh, at CIA, you know, it's a it's a an agency product. So there's a lengthy coordination process, and everyone has a chance to do comments, line edits, and so forth. And the final product is truly an agency product. And then you also have community-wide projects. That's primarily through、uh, the National Intelligence Council. So NIEs, National Intelligence Estimates, ICAs, Intelligence Community Assessments. Every now and then, you'll see some of those mentioned in the news. The Iraq、uh, WMD is a famous one. That was an NIE. And the、uh, Russia election interference—that was an ICA. So every now and then you'll get a glimpse of、uh, some of the things that the IC does. Sure. So after you、um, traded in your badge and your ability to to see all the secret stuff, you went to Muddy Waters, a famous、uh, investment firm which digs up dirt on、uh, sketchy listed Chinese companies. So what was that like? You know, trying to you know dig, but then get to share the stuff with the world. The Muddy Waters experience was fantastic. If you guys. Don't know about it?、Uh, check out the website. All the reports that Carson Block, who founded Muddy Waters, did—they're all freely available, so you can download them and read them.、Uh, they're a fascinating read.、Uh, what Carson specialized in was uncovering fraud. A lot of times in Chinese firms that are listed on U.S. markets,、uh, one of the favorite projects that I worked on while I was there was a Chinese company called、uh, Weishan Dairy. So here, what we did is. We were made aware of this Chinese dairy firm that was claiming just incredible yields. You know, the, sort of the amount of milk that、uh, their cows produce, tremendous profits on their milk, their yogurt, their cheese. They're super cows. They、what's、were the, super the, cows. What's the problem with them? Yeah, you so know, it's like 1956, right? So once we, yeah, once we started digging a little bit, we realized that in order for them to actually produce as much dairy as they claimed, they would have to have the most productive cows in the world. They would have to have their factories operate at full capacity nonstop. So we started digging a little. We had、um, a crew of people on the ground in China. And we, you know, started counting trucks. How many go into the facility? How many come out?、Uh, we had people visit the dairy farms. We had people visit the alfalfa fields where they grow the feed 
for the cows. But did you personally milk any of the cows? I would have to... loved to. I learned so much about uh, dairy farming <laughs> and how to take care of a cow. They have massagers for cows. Did you know that? I didn't. Uh, you know, they have to be at a certain temperature. They like a certain humidity level. They love to eat alfalfa. And yeah, if you do that all well, you can have super cows. This <laughs> Huishan Dairy did not have super cows. I'll just you know cut it short there. But um, yeah, the company ended up being a huge fraud. We published the report. Uh, unlike with most reports that uh, Muddy Waters publishes, the stock did not crater immediately. It actually took some time, but uh, finally, when the CFO just disappeared with a bunch of money. People Never a realized, good sign. yeah. People realized, hmm. There's probably something screwy going on, and uh, yeah. But for young China watchers in particular, Muddy Waters does a huge service for financial markets, both here in the United States, but also in Hong Kong. As you probably know, there's a ton of fraud going on in Chinese businesses, and Carson Block is one of the people that exposes this to the public. So he's doing a great service. I want to tell the story that I read in uh, Tsaisin uh, recently of like the way that the African swine flu spread across China because I just thought it was the funniest thing on the planet and like horrifying. So basically there was it was very localized uh, at first, you know, so they started like calling the pigs. But the way they did the payments for the farmers whose livelihoods were wrapped up in these like livestock was 20 percent Zhongyang Zhongfu. So 20 percent uh, central government and 80 percent provincial and local. And very quickly, the farmers realized realized that no, in fact, that 80% was not going to show up. So um, what happened were these, these like pig gangs would show up to the farmers and say, hey, you know, we'll give you 50 cents on the on the renminbi and take your pigs off your hand. And then they would proceed to re-tag the pigs. So, you know, it goes from like a like a place that everyone knows it's sick to like, you know, happy like, you know, Qinghai pigs or whatever. And, you know, within two months you have uh, you have swine flu in every province in China because it was like an underground trafficking of sick pigs to spread across the world. So not just dairy that has issues in China as uh, the world has learned over the past uh, few months. Yeah, China in a nutshell right there. There you go. So um, tech cold war, is this a phrase that people should be using? And if not, uh, why? I don't like the phrase. It's a tech competition for sure. But tech cold war has all these connotations that A, I don't think are right. And B, I don't see the benefit of calling it that. There's still plenty of room for engagement and cooperation with China. Calling it a Cold War doesn't make sense. Absolutely, we're in a competition, but a competition does not mean conflict. Competition means you take advantage of your strengths and you try to find the weak spots in the people you're competing with. So no, I, I think that's uh, just not a good phrase to use at all. And I wish people would stop. So um, what is your like optimistic and uh, negative scenario of how the U.S.-China tech relationship could evolve over the next uh, uh, decade or so? Well, I think uh, the path that we're heading down is, you know, we're going to continue to be intertwined with China where it makes sense. Uh, we're going to disengage in areas where the United States wants to preserve its strategic edge. Um, so, for example, in um, advanced semiconductor manufacturing equipment, yeah, you'll probably see a push for export controls in mm -hmm. that area. Um, but in other areas, good room for engagement would be, for instance, in co-research on artificial intelligence safety 
AI ethics, areas like that where you know there's mutual benefit, not just for bilateral relations, but just globally speaking. What are the sorts of events that you think could alter this trajectory? What would be the, an equivalent of like a Snowden leaks to sort of change the game in the way uh, these two countries relate to each other from, on a technology side? Or do you think we're pretty path dependent at this point? We'll know a lot more in, in about six months, right? So the trade talks uh, started up again today. It depends on can both sides come up with solutions where they don't lose face. Uh, a lot of the rhetoric right now, I, I feel that both she and Trump have painted themselves into a corner to a certain extent. Are they willing to, I wouldn't say embarrass themselves, but are they willing to, you know, take a little bit of flack from the hardcore hawks on both sides to come to some type of arrangement? Because I do think there's still middle ground to be found, but we can't go down this path much longer before you know more negative aspects of the relationship start really dominating the, the conversation overall. Sure. So, um, Martin, what is a rare earth? Rare earth. Uh, and so, what's your favorite? Uh, okay. So this is a, uh, a group of elements. So they're on the periodic table. Uh, up until probably six, seven months ago, vast majority of people had no clue what they were, but uh, they end up being very vital elements for products that are very important to us, things we use every day. So your computers, cell phones, pacemakers, and they're also very important for uh, military items like missile guidance systems. They're used a lot in uh, the F-35, for example, that has several hundred pounds of rare earth elements. Uh, the Virginia-class submarine has nearly a thousand pounds. So unlike the name suggests, however, they're actually not that rare. Most of them are, are quite prevalent. Uh, are any of them pretty? Uh, some are, yes. Uh, so uh, uh, dysprosium is very nice and silvery. Okay. So, yeah, they've got all kinds of interesting qualities and colors. I kind of want like a charm bracelet of them, you know. Uh, yeah, you to... could. Some of them are radioactive, but, uh, well, you know, be my guest. You know. Uh, <laughs> but the whole reason this is in the news now is because China uh, you know, dominates the market. Uh, they control... Right now, about 80% of the global supply, but more importantly, they, they dominate the production. So the, the processing is very difficult because these elements are, are intertwined with a bunch of other stuff. So you have to extract and separate. The reason that this happened is because both the mining and the processing, it's very polluting. And so a lot of countries, even though they have ample reserves, a lot of the outsourcing happened on the processing end. So China cornered that market and controlled it. Now, when the trade dispute uh, started flaring up, one of the threats was that uh, China threw out there was, well, we may just curtail our, our rare earth exports. Right now, that has tremendous impact on the United States because we only have one mine that recently reopened, and the United States has no processing Where is it? capability. Uh, it's um, at the Mountain Pass mine in California. Okay, but uh, there's is also there like missile defense around it. Like, just <laughs> no, no, it was uh, no, it was shuttered up until uh, 
uh, I think, 18 months ago. Okay. Uh, but there's So there's like weed growing all around, basically. Uh, various kinds, okay. yes, <laughs> I'm sure, since it's California. Um, but, you know, now there's movement afoot to open up new mines uh, in Texas, for example. Uh, some people think the Greenland purchase idea was largely driven by rare earths. I don't know how true that is, but there are <laughs> deposits up there. But more critically, we need new processing facilities. Uh, there is a company proposing to build one in Texas, together with an Australian company called Linus. Linus also has uh, its own mines in Australia that it's starting up again and wants to build new processing capabilities. So long story short, yes, China's threat is real, but it has a time limit on it. Basically, in about two years' time, the United States and Australia, Japan, and so forth can have a very secure and diverse supply chain. So if China does want to use the threat of curtailing exports, it's running, you know, the window's closing on being able to do that. Um, so we'll see what happens. I think the uh, the trade talks would have to get pretty nasty for China to play that card, but it's a card that they do have. And if they want to play it, again, 18, 24 months is about the time they have. All right. So I'm sleeping well, reasonably well at night when it comes to this issue. Good. You okay. should. 5G a little bit less so. So what is it and why does it matter? 5G is the next generation of wireless telecommunication. So all the phones you have in your pockets right now are 4G, fourth generation. 5G has the potential be, to be truly transformative, much higher bandwidth, lower latency. You've probably heard people talking about the Internet of Things. 5G is what's really going to make that happen because you can have so many more devices connected with the bandwidth so much higher than it is. You can start doing things like autonomous vehicles, telemedicine. So that's you know doing a remote surgery, whole host of things uh, in the defense community. They're very excited about improved communications, situational awareness. It has tremendous potential to be truly transformative for our economy, how we communicate, how we live. Everything would be interconnected, people, machines. So, uh, Martin, what's your four-minute case about why uh, people should be worried about Huawei? One at the top of my list is cybersecurity. Because all these devices that we'll have will be interconnected, you have many more vectors for attack. Now, Huawei, as uh, a company called Finite State has shown, this is a, an American cybersecurity firm, the quality of Huawei software is very poor. Finite State did not divine intent as to why this is, but the fact is that Huawei software, they found backdoors in the firmware. There's a lot of outdated issues that haven't been patched, and Huawei also has a very poor track record of addressing and fixing those issues. Well, here's my question, Martin. I mean, like, we just saw a week ago that, like, there were all these day one, like, iOS things. So, like, isn't it just impossible to write good software, or are there, like, levels of caring, which then end up uh, leading into more or less uh, vulnerable things that are easier or harder to have. Yeah, it's a level of caring. Uh -huh. every, every software has bugs. You're sure. never going to have bug-free software. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the issue with Huawei is, uh, comparatively, the, the quality of their software is much worse. Sure. And, for example, they have this relationship with the British equivalent of the National Security Agency, where they're the Brits are allowed to do some evaluations. If you read the the annual reports that they produce, they're also complaining that Huawei isn't sufficiently addressing these concerns. So 
you've got that aspect of it. Another concern is just the broader relationship with the Chinese state. So both the Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army with the national intelligence law as written. If asked, Huawei would have to provide access to their networks, their equipment, if if the PLA would want that. Even if that law didn't exist, I don't think a Chinese company would have any recourse of saying no, because what court do you go to? Who sure. do you complain to? So that's a big concern. And that's the reason why Huawei is not allowed on U.S. networks. That's the same reason why Australia uh, has gone down that path uh, and other countries like the Czech Republic, Japan, they don't want Huawei on their networks. Um, and then there's just the the general issue of governance, right? Huawei is a very opaque organization. They're cagey about their ownership structure. They're dealing with North Korea, Syria, Sudan, trying to hide that fact. The whole reason Huawei is on the entity list is because they violated international sanctions on Iran and tried to cover it up and committed obstruction of justice in trying to cover their tracks. So in totality, all these things, in my opinion, don't strike uh, me as it being a good idea of dealing with Huawei. So, you know, they recently put out this proposal saying uh, they'd be open to just licensing all of their technology and letting someone build a competitor on their, you know, entire hardware and software stack. Sounds good to me. Like, who wants to write me a $50 million or $500 million check to yeah. pull that one off? But what's the, uh, what's, the, what's the worry with this? Sounds great. It's an interesting proposal. My, uh, my, first, <laughs> my first reaction when I heard that was it reminded me of that uh, great line from Spinal Tap. Uh, you know, it's a fine line between clever and stupid. Okay. And at first glance, yeah, this is really interesting. But then when you start thinking about it, what they're actually proposing is, so some Western company would pay a one-time licensing fee to Huawei for their patent portfolio, their know-how, and uh, their source code. And then you could take all that and build your own products. Now, because you have access to the source code and most Western companies don't trust Huawei, you would have to <laughs> redo the source code, then build all the the binaries, all the firmware that you would need to put on your hardware. Oh, by the way, then you start to you need to manufacture your own hardware on top of that. So essentially you're looking at building a company from scratch using some aspects of another company's technology. So why do that, right? You could just start on your own instead of paying somebody else for the privilege of using their stuff. As I, a think I, I think I have the heart of a wolf, but yeah. they didn't take me when I applied to work there. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to build a better, I'm just going to build a better version. Yeah. And on top of that, <laughs> so say someone actually did that, then Okay, so you want to compete with Huawei on the global market? You still can't compete with them on price because with all the the subsidies they receive, they'll they'll undercut you wherever you go. So at best, you'll only be able to sell to a few Western markets. So the whole deal to me just doesn't make sense. I give them you know credit for coming out with this because they hoodwink Tom Friedman and The Economist in trying to announce <laughs> this. So, you know, kudos to them. It's a, it's an awesome PR stunt. But, you know, from a business standpoint, it, it doesn't make sense. I got to say, after misstep of misstep and just like embarrassing interview after embarrassing interview, them finally like finding like one halfway decent card to play in the public arena was, you know, pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah, it, 
they they did a nice job. It was commendable on that front. Um, so let's talk about the standard setting process. What is this and why does it matter? So in, um, in telecommunications or in many things, but in, we're, since we're talking about uh, telecom, so standard setting is, is necessary in order to have all our equipment be interoperable. And so how the whole process works is representatives from all the manufacturers of equipment get together and pretty much hash out whose technology they're going to use to be the standard for 5G. So you've got you know, all these building blocks. The, uh, the company that has the standard for a particular function then gains something called a, um, a SEP. And this SEP, uh, SEP, then provides licensing income. So every other company that has to use that technology for a handset or some other type of hardware makes money for each one of these items that's sold. So it's very lucrative if you have a lot of these standards in your pocket. And that's how a lot of companies recoup their R&D expenditures. Sure. It's sort of like weirdly inspiring. This just like happy story of like international competition and cooperation right, right. and people sort of like working really hard, but then like getting together and hashing things out. And traditionally, this this system has worked very well. You have actually relatively junior people uh, hashing all this out. And up until recently, this whole system has worked very well. What What's happened for 5G is that Huawei has been very aggressive in, in pushing their technology as the standards. Mm -hmm. And anecdotally, what I've heard is that Chinese companies are voting as a block so that all the companies will support Huawei's technology, even though Chinese companies in private will admit that that was not the best technology solution. Interesting. So far... American and European companies have not done that. They just vote for what they think is best because, you know, as technologists, it's hard. They want to see the best technology win out. So there's a lot of concern with Huawei's tactics at these standard setting meetings yeah. and pushing forward. Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, like, sure. Um, but I feel like it's it's something that's a little bit lost in the sort of DC narrative around Huawei, just the fact that they're even in these discussions to begin with. 30 years ago, these guys were importing like Japanese radios and, uh, you know, so many other Chinese companies have like either not even tried or tried and failed to get at the uh, global cutting edge when you're talking about really difficult sort of research and technology questions. So, um, you know, on the one hand, yes, there are certainly many uh, security concerns, but it's but it's really interesting to see a firm that has just decided to have export discipline and actually care about selling stuff to the world as opposed to getting uh, fat and happy on, uh, on domestic contracts and selling to SOEs and whatnot, like almost every other um, firm in this, uh, in and around this, uh, uh, you know, high, uh, high intensive like research space has done in China. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Huawei, you know, they've done impressive things, right? They went from relabeling Cisco routers back in, in the 90s to now. Yeah, they're innovating. They're doing a lot of R&D and they're coming out with reasonably good equipment. And yes, they've come a long way, but I, I do feel that they've come this far in large part due to theft cheating and unfair subsidies all i'm saying is like everyone's cheating and everyone's everyone's stealing stuff in china but like ren jung is just better at it sure. so sure you know, hats off to him <laughs> all right um, but uh uh but yeah so you know people uh people are sort of 
uh, I, I've read a few articles talking about how this is like a big strategic mistake for the U.S. That um, you know, there's no big telecom firm that is sort of at the level of a Ericsson or a Qualcomm. Like, do you think this was a mistake the U.S. did and not supporting it as like you know, 2008 Ford bailout or like the the uh, you think this is like something that should be in the sort of military industrial complex where it's it kind of gets propped up by or it should have been propped up by um the government or or is it okay that uh the 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 leading lights in this are now in uh in china and europe no i uh i don't think nationalization is the answer we're all about free markets i think you know both the the government um made some poor decisions in terms of regulation back in the 90s but the private sector did as well. Um, and so, you know, there's no use in crying over spilt milk. We are where we are. Mm-hmm. So what I would propose is that we regain the initiative and really shake up the structure of the telecommunications market as to right now it's very much hardware focused, which Huawei has been very good at. But there's um, several groups that are very interested in uh, uh, virtualizing networks meaning switching to a software-focused model. And this is an area where U.S. companies in particular would be very strong because you know the United States is very good at software. And you start addressing a lot of concerns that people have now with very few vendors being able to produce 5G equipment. So on virtualized networks, all the hardware would be generic, white box software. It's the software that is the differentiator. And so what you would have then is that you can compete on software. And because software is so versatile, uh, you can start, it's almost like a buffet. You can take little bits and pieces and produce much more customizable products. Because the barriers of entry to software are so much lower, you will encourage more people to re-enter the market. So you get that competition back, you get that supplier diversity Customers then have much greater choice, and choice brings leverage. So this should bring prices down. And because these companies are competing on software products that all have to be interoperable, there's already that incentive to have much higher security standards. And then the the differentiator, why you're better than your competitor, is even better security features. So I think we should think much harder about... Just wait until 6G... Well, it's never too <laughs> never too soon, right? I mean, company or countries and companies are already researching 6G technologies, including Huawei. Again, this is early research that's happening, but you know they're already planning what's coming ten years from now. The United States would be wise to invest more in this type of R and D now, so that we don't get uh, you know don't find ourselves in the same position ten years from now, where we're concerned about the lack of choice with vendors, all these security issues. So if we grab the bull by the horns, we can try and avoid those steps much more effectively. So, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, rare earths and you were saying, you know, there's like a 24 month window where like the China could pull one over on the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, Why not sort of take the same approach to 5G and be like, hey, you know, let's save some money and buy some Huawei boxes. But five, five, ten years from now, like we'll we'll have figured this out. Is this too important to uh, sort of go down that path? Well, I mean, say we, uh, you know, we went all in on on network virtualization. I don't think 24 months is realistic, but perhaps, uh, you know, five to seven years. Yes, we could 
upend the market mm-hmm. and have a whole new approach. But that'll take a concerted effort amongst U.S. companies, but also on on a multinational basis, mm-hmm. right? We would have to cooperate and collaborate with the Europeans, with the Japanese, the South Koreans. In the meantime, I'll just hang out in China with my 5G until the U.S. gets its uh, gets its gets its happy networks, right? Yes, yeah, you can uh, check Twitter and. Yeah. Gmail and all that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, so, so deep fakes. What's uh, what, what, what's your thinking on this, and why is this such a scary issue? Well, or the, what's scary about deep fakes? Well, the uh, the technology to make deep fakes it's getting better and better by the day. Like audio is, you know, pretty much Did indistinguishable. You hear that Joe Rogan thing. That was horrifying. Uh, I heard about it. I haven't heard the recording itself yet. I, it was it was good enough to beat me. I was I was yeah. very impressed. Yeah, um, and yeah, then people have already committed crimes, right? They uh, had a, a recording of what sounded like the CEO of a company, and people people just walked away with a ton of cash doing this. So it's already happening in audio. Uh, video is very very close to being the same way, and. You know, it's easier and easier to obtain this stuff. So, yes. So from a technology standpoint, we're pretty much there. Then there's the fact it's so easy to proliferate fake media. All the social media we have, you know, just one little click, you retweet, you forward, you like. It can spread like wildfire very quickly. And then I think a third aspect is... You know, just as human beings, we, you know, we have these cognitive deficiencies, these weaknesses that just make us very prone to believing things just because we want to see what we want to see. Um, so even if if we paused and thought for a moment, could this really be? But, you know, we have this habit of just clicking, retweeting. So one thing we need to do is just become smarter about how we use our our social media because you know, there's been some proposals like for instance uh having like a 20 second pause before you're able to retweet something i think that terrible idea you think so it would ruin it it's no yeah. fun otherwise <laughs> okay um the democratic primary so what has struck uh struck you about the sort of conversations going on um on the debate stage around technology technology in china well, I think uh, all the main candidates have pretty much articulated that they see the U.S. as being in a competition with China. So on that front, there's really very little daylight between you know the candidates and President Trump. You see the same thing in uh, on Capitol Hill. You know, it's very much a near consensus on a bipartisan basis that you know U.S.-China relations were in a competition. There's some differences in in what to do about it, right? I think. Um, Warren and Sanders have emphasized just the struggle against authoritarianism more. Mayor Pete, he, he's been emphasizing national renewal, right? He sees this as an opportunity for America to you know, rejuvenate itself, like double down on R&D spending and, uh, yeah, really think big thoughts again and achieve big things, um, which, which I guess we know who you're voting for. Oh, I mean, just kidding. Sorry, it's a little early for that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, uh, let's do a Q and A. You guys have questions? So, should export controls apply to standardization? The reason I ask is because the most recent temporary general license for Huawei made a series of assertions about the scope of activities that could be engaged with. 
um, with Huawei with respect to standardization, both in the license itself and then BIS, the Bureau of Industry and Security, issued two follow-up FAQs. So do you see the ability of companies to engage in standardization as being a part of export controls or being covered by export controls? I think that's going to be uh, just a temporary measure because you know ultimately that's n- it's not sustainable, right? If, if you have a company that's accounting for 40% of the telecommunications market worldwide, you're going to have to engage with them, particularly on discussing security matters. So I, I think that that's just a, uh, a temporary thing that will be reversed. I don't know the, the reasoning behind doing that, uh, so I can't comment as to the motivation specifically. But no, I don't see that being a, a long-term issue. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, my question actually has more to do with two things. First, uh, you said you know five um, G is great for the future for the Internet of Things for you know productivity. One of the things is uh, I think the more uh, the thing that's probably more applicable or Im- immediately applicable to a lot of com- consumers, instead of you know if my phone could um, use five G technology next year. Or, or further down the road, it's more, you know, what are the home appliance products doing at my home, right? And uh, you know, in, in China, there's not just Huawei. There's also other companies, telecommunication companies, producing home appliance products like Xiaomi. And these are coming to Western markets, including the United States, at a much faster rate, at a, a much greater amount, and what should the United, United States government do about that? Because when these device, devices are com, uh, connected to the Internet by the millions and millions, are they serious security risks for the United States? And how do you address that? And second question is, now the United States pretty much has convinced itself that it needs to seriously step up its game and create alternatives like what you described to, to what Huawei has to offer, for instance. But... What is stopping all the other countries, including some key US allies, to you know, not adopt and not use Huawei technologies? Because if you look across the board, even in Europe, you know, Germany is not committed. It is inclined to actually work with Huawei. And there's a number of people in the UK government who's, who are also inclined to believe that through government uh, regulatory intervention, they could have a optimal uh, situation where, you know, they put the risk of working with Huawei equipment and software to the minimum. And how should the United States government and the private sector react to that? Oh, those, well, yeah. I just I just want to say first off, I've had so much fun on those line bikes that I am more than happy to trade off all my privacy and security to keep like zooming around. But uh, th- yeah, those were. Uh, Fantastic questions. Hopefully, I can remember them all. Let me. Uh, so, first, on um, you know what other countries are doing with Huawei. So, you mentioned Germany. Really, what it comes down to is you know what's your tolerance for risk. Uh, some countries believe that uh, even though they, well, let me take a step back. I th- I think as far as um, U.S. allies and partners go, I think there's little daylight between them as to the perception of risk from Huawei. I think there's pretty broad agreement on that front. 
the difference is how different countries want to deal with that risk, how to mitigate it. Um, so what the United Kingdom had been doing in the past on like its 4G network was only allowing Huawei on the edge of the network. So not putting it on the core, which is the critical network. The argument that the Australians have proposed is that with 5G, with the nature of the network, just the complexity how intertwined it is, that distinction between core and edge doesn't exist anymore. Mm. And so that you really are not able to mitigate in that way. The U.S. agrees with Australia, as do some other countries. Uh, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, I believe, are considering uh, allowing Huawei on their networks. The U.K. is still deciding. Yeah, if countries think that they can adequately mitigate the risk by doing that, you know, I, I wish them well. I personally am not optimistic. And that then obviously poses a challenge to us, right? Because ultimately we're all interconnected. So there is increased risk, particularly if in the uh, you know horrible uh, event that we find ourselves at war in Europe, for example, U.S. military forces will will be using networks with Huawei equipment on it. Sure. Um, Department of Defense is working on ways to be able to communicate securely by bypassing that. And you know, over time, I think yes, that will be doable. So question number one was, um, in the house, right? Yeah. Like what, like, you know, Xiaomi, no one's worried about, should they be? Basically every time you bring an internet connected device into your home, yes, you add to your risk profile. Right. And, and it doesn't matter where that device is made. Everything can be hacked. Nothing is, is foolproof. I would venture to say that a lot of Chinese made equipment, because of poor software engineering practices are more easily hacked. But yeah, you have to take measures to protect yourself. And you'll see a whole new industry springing up, you know, with special firewalls and virus scanning and so forth for your thermostat, your refrigerator, <laughs> uh, your doorbell, you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, it, but that's just going to be the reality of it. But yeah, the only the only secure thing would be not to have those devices in your house. But for most people, I think, convenience will trump uh security concerns i feel like a really like obnoxious hack if china just wanted to piss people off would be just like turning every nest in america like three degrees down everyone's like why are we cold like what's going on i don't know yeah kick off all these domestic disputes seriously (laughs) right or i guess you sleep a little better so maybe it actually would be a positive thing anyways uh let's let's get a few more um hi um so i work for a ride sharing company and um i just had a question i do chinese underground fraud and i can see a lot an increase in hacking of accounts account takeovers financial fraud the problem working with a multinational company and protecting multinational companies is the lack of technology ethics that china has how can we protect our companies especially in america uh, from maybe actors that don't have those ethics and trying to decrease the amount of fraud because that does take a significant financial loss in the American economy and um, in successful businesses that affects us here as well as buzz internationally. Well, uh, you know, it's always important for the United States to promote uh, norms and values, ethics for technology. And this would be a good example of why that's needed. Pretty sure Travis Kalanick would still be a CEO in China. 
in 2019. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's part of the, the trade dispute with China right now is, um, you know, Washington's frustration that Beijing isn't cracking down on this type of crime more. Um, I think the uh, the sense in the administration and in Congress is that Beijing has the power to do more, but is choosing not to do so. That's probably being debated, you know, as we sit here right now. Um, Just a follow-up question with uh, 5G, 6G. This is only going to increase fraud. And so will the Chinese government have to do something about this? Um, or are they able to just continue with um, fraud and, and technology and able to I don't control the population and whatnot without having to do anything? That's kind of, I'm also thinking of the future as well, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, with so many more internet-connected devices, yes, you have many more, many more vectors of attack many more creative ways to try and steal from people. But at a certain point, particularly if it starts affecting domestic stability, yeah, I would expect the Chinese authorities to crack down more. But if they direct their energies outside the borders, maybe not as much. But, you know, the United States, the international community has leverage. And if the problem gets too big, yeah, I would expect the uh, screws to be tightened. Um, I have a short question for you. So uh, we've spoken a lot about, or you've spoken a lot, um, about the security concerns of, of Huawei in particular to mostly Western developed countries. But I think it's difficult to understate the extent to which Chinese firms have already penetrated uh, the markets of developing countries, especially South Asia, Africa. I'm wondering what long-term implications you see possibly um, in either security concerns or perhaps the orientation of these, these, these countries in orientation towards Chinese rather than, say, American technology, especially considering the, the building blocks type stuff you were talking about. Yep. Uh, no, that's a great point. I, I think, uh, well, there were these great examples, right, in, uh, uh, where was it, Uganda, um, where Huawei employees were accused of helping to spy on political opposition. Um, then if you look at it in the broader context of Belt and Road, yeah, China is trying to exert greater influence, uh, kind of like a soft power in, in Africa, uh, South America especially as well, and doing that in part through you know attractively priced infrastructure projects. Another concern is how these technologies are being used by some countries, authoritarian regimes like in Egypt, Venezuela, you know, they're using Chinese surveillance technology to suppress their populations. And then you need to start thinking, well, you know, what what should the international community do about Chinese exports of technologies that are being used in illiberal ways? You know, that's a debate we should have as a country. That's a debate we should have as an international community. Because don't forget, a lot of these Chinese uh, surveillance cameras with facial recognition, there are Western components in those devices. So should we get to a point where we place export controls on components like that to help stem the tide of, of those types of uh, capabilities? So, yeah, that was a great question. Thank you. First of all, thank you very much. I wanted to ask you again about Huawei, and my understanding is that the United States issued two decisions um, regarding Huawei. One, which basically prevents Huawei from being used, Huawei products from being used in U.S. networks, 
and the other which prevents U.S. companies from engaging in business with Huawei. That's what got the reprieve. Can you describe the and differentiate the rationale between using those two different uh, trade tools? Are either of these a national security risk or is it a national economic security risk? Um, what's the objective from using uh, U.S. companies and preventing U.S. companies from engaging with the Chinese company? And is it different from the rationale of using of preventing a Chinese company from selling to the U.S. market? Excellent question. Um, yeah, so this is uh, one of these um, issues that uh, is, is not well understood. Uh, and But the press is partly at fault for how they report it. But then also, you know, there's some messaging issues where the distinction gets lost. So there was an executive order in March. That's the reason why Huawei equipment is not on U.S. networks. Now, if you go back and look at the executive order, however, Huawei is not mentioned in that document. In fact, neither is China. So this wasn't targeted specifically at Huawei, wasn't targeted specifically at China. Now, reading between the lines, yes, the administration was looking at China primarily, but you could easily apply that executive order to others. The whole issue of U.S. companies being restricted in what they sell to Huawei, that's a separate issue. So this was the the entity listing. Uh, Huawei was placed on the entity list because Huawei violated international sanctions on Iran and obstructed justice as a part of that and also uh, is being accused of intellectual property theft. So the entity list and the executive order are separate issues. What will happen with the entity list? Right now, U.S. companies are still allowed to sell certain items to Huawei, so they haven't been cut off completely. Micron, for instance, their second quarter earnings were actually quite good, based in large part due to their continued sales to, to Huawei. I think what you'll start seeing as the primarily the semiconductor industry and the administration are in discussions that you'll see you know, not the cutting edge equipment, what I call commodity chips, for lack of a better term, you'll probably see more sales of those over time. There's no reason, you know, why why do we care if Huawei is selling handsets with U.S. chips in China? Why not, right? Because in part, you don't want to push China into a corner where they're forced to completely indigenize semiconductor manufacturing. It's good to have them rely on U.S. suppliers for that technology. But you should not provide Huawei with the cutting-edge equipment. So these are the advanced designs and the equipment to make the advanced designed semiconductors. That's a competitive edge, and that's what we should keep. But it's important to remember the entity list is for sanctions violations with Iran, and we've found out subsequently Huawei's been dealing with North Korea, Syria, Sudan, and probably some other companies as well. And no the, Cuba? Come on. Well, well is- it hasn't been linked yet, at okay, least okay. In, in, uh, you know, in the press, but I've, it's not a bad list, you know. Let's, yeah, let's. yeah, it's a nice rogues gallery, <laughs> okay. right? So, Hi. So it's my understanding, or my knowledge, that Silicon Valley doesn't really like to work with the U.S. government, uh, especially the DOD. 
Um, and it is my belief that in China, the government has a much closer relationship with these firms that are on the cutting edge. Uh, do you think the U.S. government should be trying to do more to befriend Silicon Valley to maintain equal footing with the Chinese government on cutting edge technologies? Yeah, I think uh, engagement with Silicon Valley in particular would be, you know, it, yes, it's necessary and uh, it, it would be good for the country, but you know, there's no more American thing than a U.S. company being able to tell the government, "No, we won't work with you." That's their right, and that's what makes this a fantastic country because U.S. companies have the the freedom and ability to do that. The whole relationship, this gulf between D.C. and Silicon Valley, for one, I think it's a it's a little overblown. There's plenty of very good tech companies working with the U.S. government, even with the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, but yes, there is a bit of a, a culture divide, but there's good efforts underway to, to help bridge that. You've got the uh, um, Defense Innovation Unit based out in Silicon Valley. They also have an outpost in Austin, Texas, and a few other cities. Those are good initiatives. Um, you have a lot of, you know, Washington, D.C. bureaucrats going to Silicon Valley and vice versa. So there's a dialogue. It'll just take some time, I think. There's a lot of misunderstanding in Silicon Valley as to what the U.S. military does. A lot of the, uh, the uses for AI, for example, you know, it's you know, logistics, healthcare, education, preventive maintenance, not things that I think anyone would have any moral objections to. So that's one issue. Um, and then at the same time, you know, government folks here in D.C. need to learn to understand the culture in Silicon Valley a little better, too. It's a two-way street, but just by talking and exchanging ideas, there's no reason why we can't close that gap more than it, than it is now. All right, Martin and uh, Young China Washers D.C., thanks so much for being a part of China Econ Talk. <laughs> China Econ Talk is edited by Jason McRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SUP China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. So my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $10 off your first order using the code PREPARED10. Now the only thing to worry about is... 
dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.